The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given great authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sun vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, 
sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Nepali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, um, a theologian that you've never heard of passed away. His name was Thomas J.J. Alitzer, and you don't need to write his name down. You don't need to go look on Amazon for any of his writings because most of it's garbage, Uh, and here's why. Uh, If you recall, well, some of you might recall, back in 19, it's April of 1966, there was an issue of Time Magazine that came out. Dark, black, stark background with, with cutting red letters that asked the question, is God dead? Now, Alitzer was one of the theologians that was behind this discussion, and his conclusion was this, God is no longer present He's no longer manifest. He's no longer real. Now, in 1966, this was not a new idea. 
In fact, uh, Nitschke had the same suggestion almost a century earlier during the Enlightenment. And while Nitschke thought the, that reason and science would eventually come to replace any sort of need for religion based on its social and ethical conclusions coming from science and reason, Alitzer came to this conclusion by a completely different way. He was positioned in the wake of the dev devastation of World War II, of Holocaust, there were a lot of questions being asked. There was a lot of evil that, that uh, Alitzer saw running rampant and it seemed as if it had been unchecked. And he figured, his conclusion was, that it's impossible for all of this evil to exist in the world and for a loving, compassionate, benevolent God to allow it. So his thought was that God had checked out. That God left his post and has left humanity and creation to just sort of make its way as the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Now this is quite uh, a despairing idea and one that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, emphatically disagree with. Because, first of all, the Bible tells us different. Secondly, the book of Revelation gets very much specific about such matters. See, when we gather on Sunday mornings, we don't worship, we don't sing to a God who may or may not exist. He's alive. He's here with us, among his people, even amid the mess, the chaos, the sin, and the brokenness. Now, while we can dismiss Alitzer based on biblical uh, deductions, I think that it's also appropriate for us to mull over the very same question that had Alitzer perplexed. How can a loving, benevolent, compassionate God allow such evil and travesty to exist in our world? It's a fair question one that Christians shouldn't be afraid of or back down from. Now, we, we might look at the world and, and see how it's just sort of still unraveling, how a lot of the brokenness from 1966 is very much still present, if not to a greater extent. And you would think, right, as Christians, didn't, didn't Jesus come to fix this? Right? Didn't he say he, he came and he brought with him the kingdom of God? Shouldn't things be getting better and not Worse, yet here in 2018, on the, on the cusp of 2019, evil is just as present and threatening as it was before. And when we look at Revelation chapter 6, 7, and the beginning of chapter 8, it takes us right into the belly of the beast of this question. And it helps us work through this idea, through this, these big questions that have us perplexed. Now, without context, uh, the passage that Carrie read for us this morning could be very overwhelming, right? There's a lot of destruction that's happening, and you might, if you're a visitor here, I don't blame you for asking this question, you're wondering, yikes, <laughs> this is one of those churches, huh? To that assessment, I would say yes and no. No, we aren't a doomsday church. We, we don't stockpile stuff in our basement, we're not building bunkers, we're not, you know, we're not fixed on the end times in a way that's unhealthy. 
But at the same time, yes, we are that type of the church, type of church, because we take God's word seriously. See, we we think there's a blessing in hearing and reading and doing the word of God, and so we fight for that blessing. We don't, we don't sidestep the tricky passage, the confusing passages, which this, uh, these two chapters are full of confusion, I think, for most people. We are gonna trust that God is gonna meet us here in the midst of the confusion. He's gonna meet us here, and he's gonna give us a word. And so I hope you're ready, all right? Buckle up. Uh, and while you're buckling up, why don't you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter six, uh, Pew Bible, that's page 597, otherwise the words will be up here on the screen as we get going. But as you're flipping there, I wanna fill you in on stuff because context is gonna be super helpful for understanding what's happening in these two or three chapters and then the rest of the book of Revelation. Um, What's happened at the beginning of the book, the apostle John is having a worship time in his own little jail cell. And he's, he's there in prayer, and Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ in all of his glory, shows up and uncovers. He says, I have a revelation for you, which revelation is sort of the uncovering of mystery to fill the apostle John in on what has, what is, and what will happen in regards to the end times. And so John has this vision. And this is what we're seeing. It's, it's sort of the, the first bits of the vision. And the vision, first of all, starts out where, where we need to start out. He starts out in the throne room at the center of the universe where God Almighty is seated on his throne and angels are worshiping him and the 24 elders that we see are worshiping him and praying and they're casting down their crowns and saying, worthy, worthy, worthy. But in his hand, and as God sits on the throne, there's a scroll, which we saw last week. There's a scroll that has seven seals on it, and last week we saw how this this scroll with seven seals couldn't be opened. No one was found worthy. And and this this isn't like a a piece of paper that you can just throw away like junk mail. This, This scroll contained the inheritance of God's people. That's what it represents. It's every promise that God has made in the New Testament and in the Old Testament and the delivery of those promises. And it happens in in two big umbrellas. First, that God's people would be saved. They'd be protected and and ransomed, uh, brought into the kingdom of light, taken out of the kingdom of darkness. And the second piece was that all evil would be punished and destroyed. Now, this this is incredible. This is what what we long for deep in our hearts, yet nobody was worthy to open the scroll. But then the lamb who was slain, who, who is the person, it's a persona for Jesus. He, he steps forward and he takes the scroll from the hand of God and worship erupts. Now this, this image uh, of God on his throne, Jesus taking the scroll and opening it up, this is, and not just Jesus the slain lamb, but we're told he, that he's victorious over death, that he's conquered death by death. This image is so important for us to hold on to as we navigate the tricky parts of Revelation. Because here, this, this vision of the victorious lamb who was slain gives us perspective when we come face to face with evil. And so here in verses one and two, let's see, Jesus is gonna start opening the scrolls. This is Revelation six. 
Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, of all the seals that we're going to see opened up today, this seal, the first one, is the most debated. Now, some people look at this and they see the imagery uh, from Revelation 19 of Jesus who comes on a white horse and he's conquered and he's victorious. Uh, and we see that imagery here, the white horse, the crown. He's coming out to conquer. But what we see here, the first four seals, is actually a, an Old Testament vision that Zechariah had. Um, when this horseman is paired with the three other horsemen that are gonna follow in verses three through seven, it points to the, the four horsemen that patrolled, that roamed the earth. And so more likely here, the rider that we see on the white horse isn't Jesus, but it's the kings, the powers that, that be, that claim sovereignty, the people who are working to accumulate political power, land, and people, they're, they're in their efforts to have more. They upheave civility. There's, there's a constant tone of hostility and competition that is between the nations. And as you go through seals 2 three and four, it adds to the company of calamity. They're just expounding on this unrest. Verse three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, like a vacuum, there goes the peace, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. It's so ironic that here in the season of Advent, as we are longing for peace, we see how peace sucked out. Third writer. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and rent. Now, here we see this third writer. What this is representing is, is economic disruption. He, he's pointing to famine, the essentials, right? The, the flour, the barley, what's need for, for the, the basic uh, needs of people it is in sparse supply while the oil and the wine, the things that are sort of extravagant seem to be in surplus. There's famine spreading throughout. And then the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, make no mistake about this. These four riders are agents of evil, and then they're functioning within their own nature to steal, kill, and destroy. They're creating chaos. In fact, they're exacerbating the chaos that has already existed. And so by the end of the fourth seal, when that's opened up, the world is the equivalent of a foreclosed home that's infected with critters. 
You know what I'm talking about? A, a raccoon infested house, mice droppings everywhere. These critters are non-ignorable. They're, they're nesting in the walls. They're shredding up the carpet, the woodwork. They're these unwelcome tyrants. Now at this point, you're, you're probably confused. I, I thought this, this scroll was to unlock paradise for God's people. But here things are getting worse. And so you're probably asking the chief theological question, which Andy Dillard says is this. What in the Sam Hill is going on here anyway? You see, when sin broke into the world, paradise unraveled. And we see that. We, we talked about that a lot last week, how paradise was lost. Adam and Eve ate from the fruit uh, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and things just started to fall apart. But even though the fall was long and hard, it wasn't rock bottom. God had evil on a leash like a junkyard dog. And evil, though it's on a leash, destroys everything that's in its radius. But at the end of the leash, there's a limit. There's an extent in which evil cannot move past because God has control over it. Now, you see this in the story of Job, if you're familiar with that. Job was an upright man. He loved the Lord, and life was good for him. He was a blessed man. He had, he had a lot of wealth. His family was big. I mean, by every standard of, of the ancient world, Jewish world, this man was a good guy. And you see Satan basically come to God and ask him, would you extend my leash just a little so I can get a hold of this Job fella? And he does, and basically ravages, destroys Job's life. And so what we're seeing here is that as Jesus opens the seals that are on the scroll, he's unleashing evil, just like a, a junkyard dog gets let off its leash and it's destroying, it's running rampant. And here is a, another great question. We're just full of great questions. It seems that all this test does is give us questions to ask. Why, why would Jesus let evil go unrestrained? While it seems like it's unrestrained, it's, it's actually not. It's all functioning underneath Jesus' authority. And we, we see that in, in chapter seven. He's, he's letting evil run its course, but he's still in control. And by letting these evil four riders loose, he's showing us that, that sin isn't just like a, a little itty-bitty problem. It doesn't just taint creation. When sin is let loose, it destroys everything. Complete, complete devastation. See, who would have thought that that little piece of fruit that Adam and Eve ate in the garden against God's one rule would lead to giving this chaotic and dilapidated world to their children and their children's children and their children's children. Who would have thought? But this is the inheritance that Adam and Eve left their children. Thank, thanks, mom and dad, right? If you're a parent and you're not proud of what you're gonna leave your children, it could be worse, okay? But what we see here, Jesus is offering his people a new inheritance. 
something that Adam and Eve couldn't keep. He's offering us a, a new heavens and a new earth that replaces the old. And like I said, there's two big parts to this, to delivering on this paradise. Part one is, is to delivering his people, his covenant people, from the dominion of darkness into his radiant, everlasting kingdom of light. Now, in chapter five, we're told that Jesus did this. He, he did this by ransoming, by buying his people, by shedding his own blood. And in doing so, he makes us a kingdom. He makes us priests. So that's the first part. There's this deliverance. There's this preservation of his people. But the second part is that evil and those who insist on staying in the dominion of darkness have to be dealt with. In order for paradise to be undisrupted, unrivaled, unthreatened, every single molecule of evil has to be destroyed. That's the only way God will, will be able to deliver on the promise that he's given his people. So before it gets better, it momentarily gets worse. It's much like a home renovation project. This is a major demolition. And while, while the four riders have evil intentions, Jesus deploys these four riders under his authority to function as his demo crew, right? Chip Gaines is saying it's demo day. And these agents of destruction are pulling out the old carpets, the lath, the cabinets, the dated fixtures. They're, they're taking it down to the studs and then some. We're, we're talking about widespread destruction. Even a quarter of the earth's population is wiped out. It's as if the sludge hammer has been taken to the wall of humanity. And if those four steels aren't enough, there's still three more to come. Right? At this point, humanity is clearly in a tailspin. And then the fifth seal is removed in verses 9 and 10. And what we see here are underneath the altar that's in the throne room, we see the souls of martyrs, people who have been killed on account for their faith in Jesus. And when we look at these people, we, we gotta look at them and these are heroes of the faith. These are people who, who endured until the end and they were faithful even to the point of death. And, and while they're heroes, in, in a major sense, most of these people are just ordinary Christians, people that you've never heard their names, you've never heard their stories. These are people who stayed faithful to Jesus even when it was unpopular. Why? Why would they do such a thing? Why wouldn't they just compromise when, when people are coming at them? Do you believe in Jesus? Um, no. They stayed faithful to Jesus because Jesus was their everything. They lived a life that was represented. It's the throwing down, the casting of crowns, that Jesus is worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And the other thing that they understood is that even as evil pressed up against them, to be absent from the flesh meant to be present with the Lord. Now, this doesn't change the fact that these people were unjustly killed. 
right? The, these souls are under the altar. The, the altar is the epicenter of justice, right? Where, where all the sacrifices have ever come across. And these people, the, the, the martyrs who are under the altar are crying, vindicate us, avenge our blood, Again, this takes us back to the Old Testament. This is, this is where the, the, they're echoing the prophet Zechariah, echoing Psalm 94, where, where there's this petition, there's this cry, this, this anguish. How long? How long will you be, God? How long until you step into the brokenness and do something to us? How long until you stop evil? How long until you settle up the bill? Now these martyrs, they are boldly appealing to God's nature and how they address him. They say, sovereign Lord. What they're saying here is like, God, you're powerful. Like if anybody can do something about this, it's, it's you. They say you're holy, he's holy and true. That there's a sense that we know about God's holiness that he cannot tolerate evil in his presence. That, that, that his holiness should be in effect to consume and devour the evil that surrounds him. That, that to be true, to be righteous would be to bring about the judgment that this world needs. But these saints, these martyrs, they don't get the answer that they want. At least not yet. In verse 11, we're seeing, they're, they're told, they're given white robes. Now, these white robes are significant because it's God saying, yeah, you're right. Like, you're, you're, you're a pure people. There's something about you that, that has been set apart. But he says, hang tight. He says, hang tight because you need to wait because there are more martyrs that need to be added to your numbers before vengeance comes. You see, that's, that's the travesty of seal number five as that's opened. It's, it's sort of hidden. That there are some people who belong to God that will be killed because of their faith. And while the four horse riders come and they, they execute their, their destruction without preference, we'll see in the sixth seal the same thing happens where there's no discrimination against the evil that presses down. There's a specific evil that Christians and only Christians will face. And if there are some Christians who are gonna be murdered for their faith, then every Christian ought to prepare themselves to experience microcosms of that hostility. Because being a faithful Christian being faithful to Jesus and not compromising your faith means that you will probably be disliked. As evil bears down on the wicked, the wicked bear down on Christians. They're reviled, they're slandered, there's evil that is spoken against them. Now, we could look at this and be scared of this, right? I mean, this, it's a little bit terrifying. 
But I think instead of being scared and frustrated, we ought to take Jesus at his word, okay? Here's what I mean. In Jesus' most famous sermon, a Sermon on the Mount, he, he kicks off his sermon with these beatitudes. Blessed are those who blah. And the last blessed he offers is in Matthew 5, verse 11. He says, blessed are you Favored are you, loved are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this seems like a major juxtaposition, right? How could you be happy when so many people hate you or maybe even a small minority of people hate you? How can you rejoice and be glad when evil is bearing down on you? You look at this and you're like, this, this can't be right. You're looking through the YouVersion Bible app for a different translation to see if maybe the words get twisted around a little bit. You're hoping that there's some sort of asterisk that says, you know, there's some ex- exceptions to this. But there's not. And there's especially no asterisk that's, that notes an ex- exception when, this, when the unsealing of the scroll happens. Which, by the way, like, you ask the question, when is this happening? Is this something that's happening in the future? Maybe. But, but I think there's a lot of evidence that some of these seals have been popped already, right? You take a survey of the world, there's, there's things that are underway that feel like this. These are very much a reality in our world. Even as the world goes to hell in a handbasket and Christians are persecuted, this blessing that Jesus offers us is still true. And it will be until the end of the age. Now, this is something that we as Christians need to wrap our minds around. Paradoxically here, there is more blessing in being disliked for being associated with Jesus than there is to be liked without Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we go to the streets, we're trying to create some sort of controversy. We aren't internet trolls here. But when you live a distinctly Christian life, when you take the the Bible seriously, when you live in community and on mission, when you are a generous person, when you devote yourself to praying, when you gather with God's people, When your politics, your your stances on education and morals are more informed by biblical worldview than Fox News or CNN, when the wisdom and knowledge is defined by living in accordance with God's word rather than letters behind your name, when you say no to surrendering your life to the common American idolatries of of children's sports and work, when your sexuality is conservative, right? When you're offending the Democrats, when you're socially liberal and you're offending the Republicans, and when you're faithfully vocal about the gospel. This is the prophetic nature of the church, that we're people who speak the truth even when it's unpopular. If you live this way, critics will come after you. You better believe it. 
But to live this way is to live a life that's saying, Jesus is worthy. To to live this way is saying, Jesus is worthy Uh, over all of the, the criticism, of all the slander, of all the ridicule. Jesus is worthy. And in that moment, you know you're blessed, friends, because you're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4.13, he tells us this. As we share in the sufferings of Christ, we ought to rejoice because it means we'll also share in his glory. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Right? Though our trials are challenging. Though, though God is removing these seals and it's difficult, God is refining and fortifying our faith. And in doing so, we are suffering our way to glory. Right? The way to glory is not an easy path, friends. If you need an example, look at Jesus. But with God's ability to work out our good through evil, our future is incredibly bright, even despite our circumstances. But for those who reject Jesus, for those who insist on living in the dominion of darkness, for those who persecute Christians, Suffering isn't the pathway to glory. Suffering is the pathway to judgment. There is is no bright future. Just as Jesus used death to defeat death, Jesus uses evil to punish evil, right? Specifically, Satan and those who follow him. Now, when we talk about Satan and those who follow him, I, I think we just, like, there's this instant thought of, right, we're talking Satan and demons. Or maybe Satan worshipers. See, but in this company, we have to know, you have to know this, that in this company are ordinary people, your neighbors, your your coworkers, your friends, ordinary people who have no thought for God, who have rejected him, So the lot for these people, see, what they experience is the intensifying wrath of God's judgment coming down on them. Their future does not look brighter and brighter. It looks bleaker and bleaker until it finally leads up to the final judgment where evil is destroyed, where evildoers are wiped away. Which, which in a sense, is, it's an answer to Alitzer's question, right? God doesn't tolerate evil. But we're not at rock bottom yet. There's still a sixth seal. Look at verse, verse 12. I'm gonna flip back here. 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Every dependable thing, every certain thing in this world becomes unreliable as free Wi-Fi. You see that? The foundations of the world are crumbling. The sky is vanishing. The moon turns to blood. The sun is back. black. Mountains are sunken in. And some scholars say that this is figurative language, and it very well could be. I'm not one to necessarily say But whatever it is that's happening here, it's very clear that the world has completely unraveled. Listen, and nobody is safe. Look at verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall down on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. What an interesting statement, the wrath of the lamb. You think of a lamb, you think of a nice, sweet, fuzzy little farm creature. The wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Now, a lot of people have a really hard time with Christianity because of this idea of judgment. You might be squirming in your seat. This is uncomfortable. It's like, does God really, does God really have to do that? Do we really have to talk about judgment? It seems so offensive, or maybe it's a turnoff for people, right? Can't God just love everybody? But if you want want a God of love, you have to have a God of judgment. You, You can't separate the two because justice is the ultimate expression of love. See, justice doesn't tolerate evil, especially on those who are loved. If if your family were severely harmed and you didn't want justice to be served, somebody broke into your house at night, hurt your family in a pretty serious way, and you look at them and it's like, well, I don't want to press charges. I I don't really need justice. I just want to love the guy. I would highly question if you actually love your family or not, right? Right? That, that's, that's unloving. God's love for his people and for his creation is so strong that it demands that all evil be judged and punished. Think of the martyrs who have lost their lives. Would it be loving for God to just sweep the stuff under the rug, all the evil that led to their destruction? No. That would not be a God of love at all. Not at all. See, a God without justice is a God without love, which makes him no God at all. He's just a people pleaser then. But the 
God of Christianity is both loving and just. And we see this in chapter six, justice is coming down, but we also see the loving side of God in chapter seven. And I hope, I hope that the stuff that happens in chapter six doesn't block our eyes from seeing the glorious nature of what's gonna happen here in chapter seven. Before the seventh seal is broken, right? And the seventh seal represents the complete totality of, of judgment where the, the earth is consumed by fire, complete purification. We see another seal that we become aware of. An angel comes down with a different seal from God. Now, this is not a seal that's broken. This is a seal that's applied. There's a play on words here. As, as these seals are coming off, God applies a new seal to his people. Well, the angels keep the world from unraveling any further. They, they pull back on the four corners of the earth. And God's people are sealed from this judgment, which they would be in line for unless God had acted on their behalf. And when we talk about seal, like the seal that God has for his people, this is a seal of protection, this is a seal of the covenant. We can think of it in terms of, of chips that are sealed in a Ziploc baggie, okay? Go with me here. You seal your chips up in a Ziploc baggie, you throw it in your backpack, you're gonna have a snack, throw it in your lunchbox, whatever. You're going around, those chips in a, in a sealed bag, okay, so they're gonna stay in one place. They're gonna be contained, but those chips are probably gonna get broken a little bit. They're gonna get bumped and bruised. Gonna, you, you might end up, depending on how far you gotta walk, you're gonna end up in crumbles at the end of the day. They aren't immune to their surroundings. But at the end of the day, you still have those chips in a bag. Right, they're preserved, they're kept in the, the Ziploc bag so they can get to the destination that they were intended, your mouth. See, that's what it's like for Christians to be sealed by God. It, we might get some bumps and bruises. We're going to, in fact, we can expect to suffer. You might even get killed. But the seal that God offers his people is that he will preserve them to arrive at the place that they were intended to arrive. And John looks, well, actually, first he hears. He hears the number of those people who are sealed. It's, it's 144,000 people. And this is really just a symbolic representation of all of God's people, all of the 12 tribes of people. And you might read that and get freaked out a little bit, right? There's, there's only 144,000 people. You know, there's, there's 7.6 billion people in the world. That means that, that that's a small margin, like 0.001% of people who are living might be in this number. That doesn't include people who have lived before, right? What are my chances of getting in? But thankfully, this is a symbolic number because when John looks with his eyes, he sees a great multitude that no one could number. And remember that question that was asked at the end of, of chapter six, who can stand? Well, here's your answer. These people who are sealed are standing before the throne of judgment. What an incredible thing. Look at verse nine of, of chapter seven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with, with palm branches in their hands. This is, this is a symbolic uh, gesture of victory. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Listen, here's what this is saying. The sealed, the people who are preserved from the evil of the world, complete destruction. Those are the ones who can stand before God. But when you're before God, you cannot stand long because you're gonna go prostrate in worship. These people who are standing are the multitude of Christians who have endured the suffering on earth, the tribulation. And make no mistake about it, as they, as they stand there, they know that they're not standing on their own accord. The only thing that's standing them up is the grace of Jesus. And that's why they worship. That the only reason that they're able to endure, to get where they were, were meant to get is because Jesus, by his covenant blood, has sealed them in. He was the lamb who was slain. He paid for their sins to grant them access. Isaiah 53, this is just money. I'm gonna read a little bit. Isaiah says, surely he, he's re referring to Jesus. Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed, and like sheep we have all gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he just keeps going, it's just money. See, what this is telling us is that before Jesus comes to judge the world, Jesus came to die for the world. It's his ultimate suffering that not only does it allow us to escape the judgment that we were uh, deserving of as sinners, as those who partake in evil and in sin, Jesus allows our wildest dreams to come true. Go back to, to chapter seven of, of Revelation, verse 15. I'm bringing it home, you guys. There's just too much here. To, I hope you don't have lunch plans. The wildest dreams of God's people are coming true. Verse 15. Actually, I, I missed something here. I missed something. I gotta back up. Because, because there's this question. When, when John sees these people he has no clue who they are. The elder tells him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And now here's the wildest dreams coming true in 15, 16, 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These people who stand before God in his glory are beneficiaries because it was Christ's blood that was shed instead of theirs. And as God's people, if we are those who, who put our faith in Jesus and trust in his work on the cross to, to cleanse us of our sins, we find new fulfilling purpose in serving as God's priests in his temple. Don't miss this. This means that we are where God is. See, see, right now, God is where we are, but one day we will be where God is now in his temple, in glory. And there is no more threat, no more fear, no more calamity. There we will be completely safe where, where peace, the peace that we long for in this Advent season is finally restored. Where God shelters us. He keeps us safe. See, instead of a Ziploc baggie, we're in a solid Tupperware container now. We're safe. There's no more threat of famine and hunger, right? Remember what, what the, the calamity that those horse, the, those horse riders brought? There's no more famine. There's no more hunger pains. There's no more parched mouth. Here, here we're told that Jesus himself is our daily bread, that he is the living water. He is our portion forever. No longer are we afflicted by the bipolar nature of creation. Natural disasters are no more. We won't need the sun. We're not gonna orbit around the sun because we're orbiting around Jesus. Those sheep who have gone astray, the one that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, you and me, the sheep who have gone astray, no longer are we wandering on our own. We now have a shepherd who sits on the throne in power and in glory. There's no more rival. There's no more uh, threats. It's just the imagery of Psalm 23, the, the still waters, the green pastures, that's now our reality. There's no more valley of the shadow of death. You think of that. Psalm 23 without the valley of the shadow of death, that's paradise. Where every tear is wiped away and permanently kept away. See, the only tears that we're gonna experience there are tears of joy, like tears of worship. Maybe you've experienced that at some point, right? You're worshiping the Lord and you just have this, this effectual response where you're weeping in thanksgiving. See, here in Revelation 6 and 7, we see the God of love and the God of justice meet where recompense is made. Tolkien says that everything sad is coming untrue, where creation is reestablished, where the destruction is overcome. See, that's where we're headed as Christians. This is the vision that sustains God's people in the midst of the trials and tribulations that we'll face. And at the center of it is Jesus 
the founder, the perfecter of our faith, our sure and secure anchor. See, and there's no, it's no wonder why worship erupts once again in verse 12. They, they, they see what happens, they understand what happens, they say, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Friends, this this reality ought to fuel our worship. We were creatures that were made to worship, and here this just like unleashes it. And while this is fuel for worship, this is also fuel for mission. Because only an unloving Christian can, can know this about this text and say, well, I'm good, you know, I, I'm sealed and have no regard for the unbelieving friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. This is fuel for our mission. If we understand this, this completely changes our prayer life. This means that we're functioning as priests, right? The priests are offering the incense, the prayers that are rising up to the nostrils of God like a sweet aroma. And there's an urgency that we face, friends. There's an urgency that we have. We're, we're begging that God would show our loved ones the grace that he has shown us, that they would know Christ, not as, not as the one who brings down the hammer, but as the one who takes the hammer himself. And as Christians today, when we come to the Lord's table, we're doing two things. One, we're, we're remembering that Jesus w- was broken so that we could be kept intact. That the brokenness, as, as the broken chips in the bag, that we could be put back together. But this is also a meal that sustains us, that we are pilgrims. We're, we're, we're suffering, sufferers who are enduring this journey and this is the meal that sustains us until we're face to face with Jesus himself. And so this morning, let us come with glad hearts for what Christ has done for us. Let us come with worship in our hearts and gladness. And let us take this meal knowing that this, is, this meal is meant to compel us out on mission, to share the love of Christ with those we love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for Christ, we, we realize that we are people who deserve judgment, that we are the sheep who have gone astray, that we walked away, that we, we said, you know what, I'd rather, I'd rather do life my own way, but it's by your grace and your mercy that you've wooed us back to yourself. And you don't strong arm us, you, you don't force us into loving you, you, you make it available. You say, here I am, here's my son, the son of God who's come, he didn't come to judge first. He came to lay his life down as a ransom. Father, would we be just overwhelmed by that vision of grace? Would you do a work inside of us to draw us near to you? And Father, we pray for those who are outside of these church walls right now, people who have no thought for you. Would you do a work in our city? Would we see revival? Souls coming alive to the reality of the great God who created and redeemed them for our good, for their good, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.